Yo tengo casi 33 años de ser, de ser forense. Nunca había visto una, una escena así. En Spring 2021, reporter Brian Avelar launched an investigation that began in the depths of a grave dug by a serial killer and ended with the government forcing him and other journalists to flee El Salvador. Sonoro and Revista Factum present Humo. Murder and Silence in El Salvador, the story behind a country where the truth and its citizens' rights are buried under the weight of power. Señor Ministro, ¿dónde está Karen y Eduardo Guerrero? ¿Dónde están mis hijos? Listen to Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. You expect that once a cold-hearted killer is caught and placed in prison, that's where they will stay for the rest of their lives. This is unfortunately not always the case. On August 6th, 1966, a man killed for the first time. And while the brutal crime may be the first, it was absolutely not his last. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Kenneth Allen McDuff, the fifth of six children, was born on March 21st, 1946 in the central Texas town of Rosebud to a well-to-do family and a father who became a successful businessman after a construction boom of the 1960s that sent his concrete company soaring. Little Kenneth was a boy who wanted for nothing and was particularly spoiled by his mother, Addie, who was nicknamed the pistol-packing mama after threatening a school bus driver who tried to kick Kenneth's older brother off of the bus. The McDuffs weren't the friendliest family, and many in the town saw the family dynamics as odd, with a local newspaper editor describing them as, quote, very dedicated to their children, attentive, protective, making sure they grew up knowing how to work and work hard. And at the center of it all was the doted-upon Kenneth, who was treated as though he was some sort of god by his trio of sisters and his mother who thought he could do nothing wrong. They were very, very wrong. It started out small. Kenneth was a bit of a bully at Rosebud High School, and old classmates can recall a vivid moment when he challenged the most popular boy in school to a fight, a boy he had been goading for quite some time. But the plan backfired when he became public enemy number one in the school for trying to provoke the beloved athlete. The fight happened, if only for a few minutes, and when Kenneth bit the young boy after he got him into a headlock, the incident went down in rosebud history as the day Kenneth finally got knocked down a few pegs. A few months later, Kenneth McDuff quit school and went to work with his father. That's when, in 1964, at the age of 18, Kenneth's criminal record started with a conviction for 12 counts of burglary and attempted burglary in Bell, Millam, and Falls County. He was sentenced to 12 four-year sentences but was paroled in December of 1965, only to return again briefly for his involvement in a physical altercation. 
It was around this time that, unbeknownst to those who knew him, Kenneth became what would later be called the Broomstick Killer. On August 6, 1966, Kenneth, after a day spent pouring concrete for his father with a new acquaintance named Roy Dale Green, took a drive around town when he casually mentioned that he needed to find a girl. At around 10 p.m., he noticed a car parked about 150 yards away on a baseball field in Everman, Texas. Standing around the car was 17-year-old Robert Brand, his girlfriend, 16-year-old Edna Louise Sullivan, and cousin, 15-year-old Mark Dunham, who was visiting from California. All three teens were complete strangers to both Kenneth and Roy, but that didn't stop Kenneth from threatening them with his 38 caliber Colt revolver and ordering them to get into the trunk of the car. With Roy driving his car and Kenneth driving the now-stolen stranger's car, the pair drove along the highway and off into a field where he ordered Edna out of the trunk and told Roy to place her into the trunk of their car. What happened next came directly from a statement made by Roy Green, who claimed that Kenneth said he would have to knock them off and shot six shots into the trunk containing the young men. He then instructed Roy to wipe up any and all fingerprints that they may have left behind, and when that was done, drove away to another location with Edna still inside of the trunk. When they arrived, both men, Roy apparently under duress, raped the 16-year-old girl repeatedly. When they were done, Kenneth asked for something to strangle her with, and Roy handed him his belt. Opting for something else, Kenneth finally settled for a three-foot-long piece of broomstick he had in his car, and choked Edna Sullivan until her neck broke and she took her last gasp of air. Deciding he was done with her, Kenneth packed up her body and together, the men threw her into some bushes and then went to a gas station for some sodas as if nothing had happened. The following day, Kenneth buried his revolver next to Roy's garage and their mutual acquaintance cleaned out the car. Now, this case could have lasted a very long time, but when Kenneth chose Roy Green as an accomplice, he chose a man who had too much of a conscience to stay quiet. The day after the murder, Roy told his parents what he had been forced to do, and his mother convinced him to turn himself in, which, of course, led to Kenneth's arrest. Roy told the police everything, including the fact that Kenneth had bragged openly about an extensive criminal record that included the rape and murder of two unknown young women before the triple homicide. This was, of course, all mentioned at his trial, so it wasn't a shock when the dangerous young man was sentenced to death in the Texas electric chair. What was surprising, though, was that after the 1972 U.S. Supreme Court ruling, Furman v. Georgia, not only was Kenneth's sentence reduced to life imprisonment, but after a lawyer amassed a pretty impressive dossier naming Roy Green as the killer, and a bribe was made to an official that landed him two extra years in prison, Kenneth was somehow paroled and released in 1989. According to the board members, they thought Kenneth could still, quote, contribute to society. The day he was released and the news spread throughout the town of Temple, where he was to report to a parole officer, a local sheriff named Larry Pamplin said, I don't know if it'll be next week or next month or next year, but one of these days, dead girls are going to start turning up and when that happens, the man you need to look at is Kenneth McDuff. His ominous prediction came true three days later when the naked body of Seraphia Parker was discovered beaten and strangled to death in a field in Temple, Texas. Kenneth was, in the eyes of most, guilty of Seraphia's murder, 
but was never charged with the crime. He did, however, return to prison on a parole violation and for threatening a young man in Rosebud. Addie McDuff, always the protective mother, paid $2,200 to two Huntsville attorneys in return for an evaluation that led to his release on December 18, 1990. On October 10, 1991, Kenneth picked up a sex worker named Brenda Thompson in Waco where he was attending classes at the Texas State Technical College. Once securely in his car, Kenneth bound the young woman and drove off only to find himself heading right towards a police checkpoint. He stopped about 50 feet from the point, and as a police officer made his way towards the car, Brenda kicked the windshield with all her strength, cracking it in several places. Realizing that there was no way he was making it through this checkpoint, Kenneth pushed on the gas and sped towards the officers. Three had to jump to avoid being hit, and after giving chase, Kenneth was able to elude them by shutting off his lights and going the wrong way down a one-way street. Brenda was found tortured to death in a wooded area near Route 84 in 1998. Five days later, and apparently undeterred by his close call with police, 17-year-old sex worker Regina Deanne Moore was witnessed arguing at a Waco motel with the John who had just hired her. Shortly after, Kenneth and Regina drove off in his pickup truck towards Texas State Highway 6, where he bound the young girl with stockings, raped her, and murdered her. By the time her body was found on September 29, 1998, the young girl had been missing from home for seven years. The following month, 23-year-old Cynthia Renee Gonzalez was found dead in a creek bed near County Road 313. And though it was never proven, many believe Kenneth was the man responsible for her death. On December 29, 1991, 28-year-old Colleen Reed was kidnapped in plain sight from an Austin car wash by Kenneth McDuff and a new accomplice named Alva Hank Worley. Both men repeatedly raped Colleen, taking turns beating her and torturing her with cigarettes. And when they were done, Kenneth ended her life. On February 24, 1992, 22-year-old sex worker and student at Texas State Technical College, Valencia Joshua, was strangled to death and found at a golf course near the school on March 1, 1992. She was last seen knocking on Kenneth's door. The very same day Valencia's body was found, 22-year-old Melissa Northrup was kidnapped from the Waco Quick Pack, where she and at one time Kenneth worked and was strangled to death with a rope. She was pregnant with her third child at the time and was found in a Dallas County gravel pit with her hands still tied behind her back. Due to witnesses placing him in the area of the abduction, Kenneth was considered a suspect in Melissa's case. And when her body was found on April 26th, a college friend of his told officers that Kenneth had attempted to enlist him to help with the store's robbery. He had, of course, refused, but knew it was likely that Kenneth went ahead with the plan. At this point, it seemed pretty ludicrous that Kenneth McDuff had not been arrested for these crimes. But the major problem with this investigation was that all of his post-release crimes took place across several Texas counties, making a single investigation and information sharing difficult. What police did know was that Kenneth was peddling drugs and was in possession of an illegal firearm, both federal offenses for the parolee. So on March 6, 1992, a local state attorney issued a warrant for his arrest and the following month brought in Alva Warley for questioning. He, like the accomplice before him, admitted his involvement in the kidnapping of Colleen Reed and implicated Kenneth McDuff in her murder. 
Kenneth, who at this point was living in Kansas City, Missouri, under the assumed name Richard Fowler. Thankfully, when his profile aired on America's Most Wanted on May 1st, 1992, a co-worker named Gary Smithy recognized him and, after confirming his suspicions with another co-worker, telephoned the Kansas City Police Department, who searched his new name and found that he'd been arrested and fingerprinted for soliciting sex workers. The fingerprints were compared with Kenneth McDuff's and the connection was officially made. Three days later, Kenneth McDuff was arrested. Indicted on one count of capital murder for Melissa Northrup's murder in McLennan County on June 26, 1992, Kenneth was found guilty, and on February 18, 1993, a jury opted to sentence him to death. After a number of delays, Kenneth McDuff was executed on November 17, 1998, and is buried at Captain Joe Bird Cemetery, a place where prisoners whose families choose not to claim their bodies are laid to rest. His headstone contains only his date of death, an X indicating that he was executed by the state, and his death row number. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on August 7th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.